the lie that poetry tells is constant as the truth itself without the lies and the false beliefs where would we be where would we be welcome to the state of the theory podcast i'm hannah and i'm an india and we are your theory doctors Hello, welcome back. Welcome to episode 20 of State of the Theory. Um, And this week we are going to be looking forward in a hiding behind the sofa, terrified kind of way at the EU referendum that is going to happen next week as we speak um, in Britain. And we are going to think about some of the issues that... Uh, this particular referendum raises. Um, do you want to explain a bit for those of our listeners who don't know what the referendum is about, what's going to happen and when? Well, to be honest, I was thinking you should probably explain this because you can actually vote in the referendum. Yeah, I can. So on the 23rd of June, which is next Thursday as we speak, uh, Britain is going to have a referendum about whether or not Britain should leave the EU, the European Union, or whether or not Britain should stay. Uh, Different sides have different positions on on what the consequences would be. Um, If Britain leaves the the EU, then uh, migration, uncontrolled migration across various EU countries, which exists at the moment between Europe and Britain, would presumably stop. Um, There are arguments to say that, you know, three million people, EU citizens living in Britain, will have to move. Uh, Presumably a lot of the funding, EU funding in Britain, in terms of infrastructure funding, research funding, will go. The pro-leave campaign says that Britain gives so much money to the EU that that money could be redirected into Britain funding its own infrastructure. Think we are both suspicious of those facts. Mildly skeptical, yeah. I would say. Um, I think there is a left-wing and a right-wing case on both sides. So the referendum has produced unlikely allies. So left-wingers joining with the far right in supporting the Leave campaign. So the far right supports the Leave campaign uh, predominantly out of anti-immigration and um, xenophobic uh, reasons. Uh, The far left supports leaving because of democratic and sovereignty reasons, roughly. And corporate. And anti-corporate reasons, yes. Yes. Um, And you have a right-wing support of the EU, which is a pro-business, you know, free transport transport of labour stuff. Movement of capital, Movement of capital. And, goods. and you have a left-wing support of EU in terms of exchange, inclusivity, human rights, all of the things that the non-existent British constitution does not guarantee, uh, everything from workers' workers' rights through to, um, you know, the European Court of Law. Yeah. And things and like things air pollution yes. legislation and yes. clean water. and um, It's been a very divisive campaign. Um, 
the you know number of times the the British government is is split down the middle with with half the ministers in support of uh, Brexit. Brexit is the term that is being used to describe the British exit of of the EU. Um, half the government supports the the Remain campaign. Uh, generally speaking, most of the party main principal party hierarchies in in Parliament all support uh, British the British Remain campaign, but there are significant extra parliamentary forces, mostly on the on the right, uh, campaigning for an exit. Two questions yes. that I have for you. Number one, why? Where where did this come from? Why why is this debate happening and why is the great British public being subjected to it? Um, so it sort of depends on who you ask. Um, David Cameron, the Prime Minister, promised an EU referendum in the last general elections, principally in order to placate the right wing of his own party and trying to minimise uh, an exodus of votes to the right of the Conservative Party. Uh, that's why we have, we're have we having a referendum, I think. Uh, the discourse, of course, is to you know, democracy and give people the choice and, and so on and so forth. Um, though, given that multiple governments over the last few years have been elected on an explicit pro-EU mandate, you would have thought that that would qualify as a mandate for Britain remaining in the, in, in, in the EU, but that wasn't the case. As to why the right wing is so insistent that Britain leaves the EU, I think there is a, a, a strong xenophobic anti-immigration streak to the right wing in Britain. There is also a, a general national reluctance to accept the loss of empire. In other words, Britain cannot see that without an empire, Britain is a small and not necessarily particularly significant player in world politics. And Britain does not get to have its own way in the European Union quite as often as it would like. And Britain believes that as an imperial nation, even though it is no longer an imperial nation, really, um, Britain should have its own way. So there is um, a lot of talk, actually both on the leave and the remain sides, of Britain needing to modify international diplomatic conventions and rules in order to get a better deal for itself, because Britain believes that Britain should uh, have its own way more than Germany or France or Spain or, or whoever, all of the other partners in this union. I find that discourse especially fascinating. Mm. Um, the idea that that Britain is, you know, in, in Orwell's Animal Farm, Britain is the pigs. Mm. You know, some animals are more equal than others. Mm. You know, and pigs are most equal of all. Britain is mm. is entitled 
to something, and it's yeah. not really clear what that is. Well, it's not unlike America. I mean, America is what Britain would like to be and once was. Yeah, and you know, we we call that American exceptionalism. Yes. Um, and you know, f- for any number of reasons, the United States is still capable mm. of throwing its weight around. Yes. Britain is sort of capable of throwing its weight around in the context of the EU. Yes. And Britain does throw its weight around quite a bit yes. in the context of the EU. Yeah. Um, for example, not signing up to the shared currency. You know, Britain gets its own very powerful, mm. um, you know, rock star currency, if you want to think about it in those terms, mm. making the pound sterling sexy. You know, it's... It, it's it's this sort of imperial feeling of of weakness, vulnerability, mm. victimhood, while at the same time mm. imperial feeling of might and mm. and entitlement. Yeah, I mean the 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 current government seems to have sort of might be remembered as the government of the referendum, right? Because we've a couple of years ago we lived through another. Um, crucial referendum on on whether or not Scotland would go independent, and that's a it's a referendum that is in many ways very closely linked to this one, because one of the ways in which the the no side, so the the pro union side in in the Scottish referendum won was using the EU as an argument. The argument being that an independent Scotland would not be guaranteed continued EU membership. Uh, which, which of course is now under a very real existential threat because polls suggest that Britain as a whole might vote to leave. You know, as as we speak, the polls are suggesting that the Leave campaign might win. Except in Scotland, the Leave campaign definitely won't win. So, a Scotland which two years ago voted on the promise of continued EU membership, voted to stay within the British nation might now be taken out of the EU against its will, which would in all probability lead to another Scottish referendum uh, and national borders get get redrawn completely. So you could have the situation where an independent Scotland is no longer part of the United Kingdom but is part of the EU and the rest of Britain doesn't have Scotland and isn't part of the, the European Union. And both of us in our work, academic work, in various ways, is focuses on borders and sovereignty and, and nation states and national identities. And it's a fascinating time to be doing this research, even though we, our research is historically, geographically very different from, from the current situation in, in Scotland and Britain. But the experience of living through times when borders seem more than usually malleable on an intellectual level is fascinating, even though the consequences could be terrifying. Yeah, I felt that way with the Scottish referendum as well. Mm. Um, how how I felt really kind of lucky mm. and privileged to be here mm. when it was happening, mm. because it was so fascinating. Mm. Um, and it was it was a really kind of dynamic and... Um, in many ways, a, a really nice time to be here. Mm. 
um, because of how involved and um, active mm. Scottish people were. Um, it was it was like democracy in action, really, for the first time. Which must have made you feel even more disenfranchised than usual. Yeah, I mean, I was seriously, seriously disenfranchised. And, you know, my position in both of these referendums mm. is very much at stake. Mm. And I have no recourse mm. to any sort mm. of political power mm. um, in either case. Mm. And, you know, there's debates about whether or not that should that should be the case. Um but I, th I think one of the things about the Scottish referendum that I said at the time, and I collected a bunch of news articles before I, well, before the referendum happened, mm. um, in order to sort of kind of crystallize or preserve this, it, is the, it's the concept of, of time and the before and after. Um, Part of it was that at the time I was I was working through some very painful, difficult philosophy about temporality and the the role of time and the passage of time in our research and our method and, and how we how we think about the world mm. in terms of of time passing mm. and our own mm. kind of our own kind of development mm. and, mm. and mm. Um, march towards death. I don't. It, it's. It was. It all got very, very existential for me. It was. It was very painful. But the idea really is that, you know, one of the reasons we're doing this, this particular episode before the vote, is because the things that we're saying now today about the referendum, will be fundamentally different mm. from the things we will say after the referendum because things will change completely mm. and forever mm. uh, and it's not a sort of I think you know it, 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 we like to think historically about sort of chrono chronology and mm. when we look to the future we're thinking in terms of discrete specific um, narratives that are narratives of you know predicting the future basically and so there's a number of, of prescribed mm. discrete narratives about um, a, a vote to leave mm. and a vote to remain and these things will happen those things will happen but there will be a, a sort of teleology a yeah. kind of a beginning yeah. a vote and then an end mm. but in fact what we have are two different temporal realms mm. in a sense two arenas yeah. that are distinct, mm. completely distinct mm. from one another. Mm. And, you know, there's lots of, like, trite phrases about this, like hindsight, you know, in hindsight yeah. and whatever. So, so at the moment, we are living in a world where Britain could vote to stay, could vote to leave. But after the 23rd of June, we would have been living in a, Brit in a world where Britain voted one way. So when we look back over these days, we wouldn't be looking back over a time where both options are open. We'd be looking back over a time where we know what the yeah. result is. And it becomes the build-up, the run-up, yes. the lead-up yes. to the eventual result, which is inevitable. Yes. It becomes inevitable. Yes. And we start to see patterns 
post-referendum yeah. that we did not see before. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily mean that those patterns aren't there. Mm. But to a certain extent, those patterns kind of aren't there. But in terms of talking about yeah. the world that we're in. Because we, we, are, we cannot help turning history into narrative. And narrative is teleological. You know, narrative has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It is going towards something. And when you turn history into a narrative, you you artificially impose a sense of order and a sense of direction that it is going towards this known end point. Yes. Except it isn't a known end point now. No, it's, it's, it's all possibility. Mm. And, you know, I would imagine that old school theoretical physicists are really the only ones who can, mm. who can adequately describe this using math but yeah. the the sheer fact that there has not yet been a decision mm. means that the way that we think about the referendum is yes. fundamentally different now from how we will think about it next week yes. and funnily enough i tried i tried to use this as my um, methodology in my mm. PhD, mm. and also my justification mm. for not really discussing um, in any meaningful way post-partition mm. subcontinent. Mm. Um, it was like a get-out-of-jail-free mm. card, really. But the idea was to imagine pre-independence, mm. pre-1947, mm. pre-partition, mm. in the way that it might have occurred before partition happened mm. without hindsight. But you can't do that. You can't do that. And so then you have you have to write some layers mm. into your narrative. You start to mm. think about, mm. you know, why now? Yeah. What is different about how I'm telling this story now? Yeah. And what does it do? Yeah. How does it change... Yeah. How we know. And, and what does it do, you know, really, if we're talking about, like, pre-Scottish referendum, yeah. how does it allow us to better empathize with, you know, Scottish voters? And Yeah, I mean, the Scottish referendum is a really good example because, so, you know, in the interest of transparency and laying cards on the table, I voted yes, so I voted for Scottish independence. And the 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 exciting time that you described a little bit earlier on that the, the the days leading up to the referendum was was there was something really vibrant and uh, stimulating about those days, about the about the way that the the debates captured the imagination of a large proportion of the population, which is why turnouts were very very high, much higher than general election turnouts are in Britain. And every time I saw a yes sign, you know, a campaign poster, leaflet, anything it was a reminder of something really exciting that is happening. And of course, the day the referendum happened and the results came out, the, the signs didn't disappear overnight. So the day after, the week after, even now, every now and then, you, you'll drive around and you'll walk around and you'll see a yes sign. Even more often than every now and then. people, yeah. A lot of people have left yes. them up. And they've developed for me, as a Yes supporter, a kind of poignancy, a kind of a symbol of what might have been. And of course, that is anachronistic, because 
that is not what the sign meant before the referendum. So if, you know, as someone who is going to vote for the EU referendum and I'm going to, going to vote that Britain stays, were Britain to leave, then all the things that I'm thinking now in, in relation to debates on TV, in relation to the deeply unedifying spectacle of Nigel Farage, who's a far-right leader of the, the UK Independence Party. Not an MP. Not an MP. Who he Part of his campaign strategy was to organise this boat trip down the Thames. So you had images of him standing in a boat. All of that would mean something very different after next Thursday. I would be looking at it with different eyes. I'd be looking at it with a different set of expectations and assumptions and knowledge that I don't have now. And what, what's most fascinating is that this applies to everything. Yeah. So every piece of reporting, every bit of commentary, yeah. um, every sort of representation of the events will fundamentally change yeah. after Thursday. And they'll change without recognition yeah. that that is what's happening. Yes. And... I find that really fascinating. Yeah, so we, you know, we plan if uh, the first chance we get to do a post-referendum episode uh, when we'll return to this this topic, and of course we will remember what we have said now, but we won't be the same people. No, and I'll probably, you know, given what the polls are saying, I'll probably be saying really nice things about how handsome Nigel Farage is for a man of his age and yes. um, how much admiration I have for our new overlord Boris Johnson yes. because there will be a change in government yes. and you know my immigration status will be very much at stake yes yeah well Trump supports Brexit Trump does support Brexit I am curious as to what that would mean for his golf courses but that's mm. another story isn't it Yes, it's. It, I mean, it's really interesting, given to if given we're going there, to to look at how Brexit has mapped itself onto the U.S. presidential election. So, we we mentioned uh, in an earlier episode, Obama visited visited Britain a month ago, a couple of months ago. Yeah, and he came out very strongly in favor of uh, the Remain campaign. So, so he he made the case that. An a, a Britain outside the EU would not be, uh, would not have any particular special status in terms of independent bilateral deals with America. Obama basically said, "Yeah, you're going to have to join the back of the queue," um, which, of course, the the Brexit camp really did not like. And Boris Johnson, who's one of the leaders of the Brexit camp, said that Obama hates Britain because of his Kenyan heritage, uh, which was a particularly charming moment uh, <laughs> among his many charming moments uh, he also compared you to Hitler which is about surely the sign that you've lost an argument uh, yeah. but it says so much about Britain as a country and Britain's immigration related existential angst that uh, that discourse at this level is still effective enough that as as we speak, polls suggest that Britain is going to leave the EU. Um, that may well change. Um, there, there's been 
uh, horrific incident today, as we're speaking, uh, of uh, Labour MP Joe Cox, who was shot. Apparently, this is all unconfirmed, we, have, we haven't had official confirmation of this, but apparently by uh, someone who claimed allegiance to a group called Britain First, which is one of the various fringe neo-Nazi, neo neo-fascist groups. Uh, and if that is the case, then there seems to me to be a direct connection between many, many years of mainstream, both left and right mainstream politics, exploiting and stoking uh, particular nativist, xenophobic, anti-immigration rhetoric, uh, and then not being able to control the results which spill over into interacts like this. And again, as we speak, it is impossible to know if, how this will affect the referendum. Yes. Presumably it will, but we, we can't know how. It's hard to know how. They suspended campaigning for the day. Yeah. Um, for those of you who aren't in the UK, you may not have um, seen this story reported. It might not have might not have been reported. Mm. Um, we'll post a link or two to it, because um, especially given um, recent events in Orlando, Florida as well, um, it's it's a really shocking, um, very tragic story and very horrific. I mean, Joe Cox was, she's quite a new MP. She was elected a year ago. And her, what is, what is very kind of um, poignant and telling about this story beyond the gendered element of, of her and the reporting of her death um, is the, the fact that she is one of the most prominent MPs involved in um, pro-refugee, yes. pro-migration organizations. Yes. So she has been very active in promoting resettlement of Syrian yes. refugees in Britain. Mm. Um, she, both in in Parliament mm. and outside mm. of Parliament, she has mm. been very, very active, mm. which is a, a stance that not mm. not as many labor politicians have taken as I perhaps would like. And, and it, it just speaks to the fact that the debate, unlike the Scottish referendum debate, largely speaking, the EU referendum debate has had problematic, dangerous, potentially explosive, race-tinged discourse running right through it. So we mentioned Nigel Farage earlier on. There's a, Nigel Farage released a, a campaign photo of him standing in front of a poster, which is basically a sea of non-white faces. Um, you know, the the hordes um, of, of immigrants who are beating at Britain's door trying to come in and, and overwhelm Britain, British um, services and, and take over jobs and, and benefits at the same time. And uh, there have been poll after poll which shows that the general level of knowledge about among the average British voter, both about EU regulations, EU policy, and about the scale of immigration, is shocking. You know, Britain, general British population typically, on both sides, typically overestimate um, the the numbers of EU immigrants by to the order of several times, um, and that ignorance has been actively 
created and preserved by the both the mainstream left and the mainstream right to the point where it is now no it is now not politically possible to link anti-immigration sentiments to racism the fact that anti-immigration sentiments have within them problematic racial and overtones is not a is not a truth that can be spoken in mainstream British politics. Every time that has happened, every time a politician has been caught out um, describing an anti-immigrant voter as racist, that has become a scandal because you are not allowed to say that. You are not allowed to question the motives of someone who is anti-immigration in Britain. Yeah. And of course this all fits into um, the, the referendum debate into the kind of country Britain sees itself as and into the kind of violence that we described earlier on. It's fascinating because linking the discourse of immigration more broadly to the discourse of the Brexit campaigns, unlike the Scottish referendum, as you've said, this has not been a campaign about opportunity mm. and about um, about reshaping, refashioning, redefining what it means to be a nation. Yeah. There was a there was a really fascinating element of the Scottish referendum debates that that was about being a being an independent country yeah. with a new kind of border. Yeah with a new kind of definition of what it means yes. to be Scottish. Mm. It, it was fascinating. Yeah. This, this campaign, from an outside perspective, That's although right. be it an, you know, an outside perspective mm. with, with an interest, mm. um, has not been like that. No, it hasn't. It has also been a ridiculously Anglo-centric campaign. So the fact that Britain as a whole seems likely to vote to leave says so much about English dominance in Britain. Scotland is not going to vote to leave. Wales is not going to vote to leave. Northern Ireland is probably not going to vote to leave. These are the these regions are economically deprived compared to England. There's a map showing what proportion of EU aid goes to what proportion of Britain. And the non English parts of Britain get much more aid than England than, than England does. And EU aid typically goes to some of the poorest parts of Europe. So South Wales, for example, is one of the poorest parts of, of Europe and gets a massive amount of EU aid in order to build infrastructure and, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, if Britain votes to leave, then Wales is going to be at the mercy of England, specifically the mercy of London, Westminster politics. And, and London will then be in a position to decide what fraction of the money it is saving that it isn't giving to the EU will it channel in aid to Wales. The fact that within, you know, supposedly the fourth largest economy in the world, parts of Wales have been allowed to become one of the poorest parts of Europe suggests that Wales is not going to do very well if London gets to decide what, what proportion of money will go to Wales. Interestingly, there's a similar 
similar situation in many of the Scottish Isles um, and the Scottish Highlands, which also happens to be um, very much a fishing economy. And the fishermen are qu are quite pro-leaf. Yeah. Um, because the EU regulates um, fishing, quotas. fishing quotas and um, they monitor mm. the seas, basically. Mm. And the Outer Hebrides, if you drive around the Outer Hebrides, you see that much of their infrastructure and much of their mm. um, historical and cultural um, sites and heritage are funded by the EU. And next to those signs, mm. where you see that, mm. are Vote Leave posters. Mm. And I don't know what the actual breakdown is polling-wise, mm. but to see mm. the quite prominent support that mm. members of communities in the Outer Hebrides have to leave, mm. and the amount of financial support mm. given to the Outer Hebrides by the European Union mm. is fascinating. Yeah, I mean the regional differences are huge. Like in in certainly where where we are speaking from in Edinburgh, it is rare to see a vote leave sign. Um, recently, I drove down uh, drove down to Wales, so through the heart of of Middle England, as it were, and I hardly saw any vote remain signs. There were huge billboards by the motorway, vote leave, vote leave, vote leave. Um, and the differences were striking. It was the same when I was in Nottingham mm. earlier this yeah. week. Um, and it's... It's so... F I mean, it is fascinating. I mean, given given that the debate is about democracy and sovereignty mm. and self-rule, mm. the fact that this is deciding whether or not to leave power within mm. the European Union or to give mm. it to England... Well, it, it's also fascinating given that most of England did not understand Scotland's desire for sovereignty and self-rule in the Scottish referendum. Yeah. So a large proportion of the vote leave side was adamantly against Scottish independence um, and decried the Scottish yes side as nationalistic and dangerous. And against the Union. And against the Union. Um, because they... They want a different kind of union, um, and you know the 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 way Nigel Farage and, and the the yes the the Brexit side is pitting different types of foreigners against each other is fascinating as well, and it's, it's sort of a very old imperial strategy where they are they are claiming the EU is discriminatory because EU immigration is given preference to non-EU immigration. And they claim that were Britain to leave, then Britain would allow more non-EU citizens, principally Commonwealth citizens, to, to enter Britain. Uh, of course, that's, you know, their, their race record suggests that's a complete lie. Um, and the vision of Britain they, they want is an insular, isolated, uh, exclusive nation, uh, which for both of us is a, is a terrifying concept. Yeah, well, that nation doesn't include either of us, does no, it? No, it doesn't. Um, so, yes, we're living in interesting times. Um, 
we will see how how the votes and how the polls change over the next week or so and then uh, this time next week we are sitting in front of the TV watching the election results as they come in and we will try as soon as we can after the results are declared to to revisit this topic and and see how we feel yeah if we can speak about yeah, it yes um, but I think that's it I for think that's it for the moment today um, thanks a lot for listening uh, let us know your thoughts and see you next week bye bye we hope you enjoyed this episode I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Vichardry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been the State of the Theory. Thank you.